Impact Hustlers, the podcast on entrepreneurs and changemakers that are creating solutions to the world's biggest problems. Impact Hustlers is brought to you by Waira UK, part of Telefonica Open Future. Visit waira.co.uk to learn how our acceleration programs can help your startup grow. And this is your host, Michael Shafrat. In today's episode, I talk to Daniel Epstein, the founder and CEO of Unreasonable Group. But before we get to this, I'd like to really thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, it's been an amazing journey. We're now releasing weekly episodes um, with very diverse and very interesting entrepreneurs from all walks of life, sharing their stories on how they are solving some of the world's biggest problems. To make sure that you're kept up to date and that you receive the newest episode every Friday onto your device, make sure that you subscribe to it please subscribe to this podcast on any of the podcasting platforms that you're using, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any other platform that you might be using. Make sure that you subscribe um, and we'll make sure that you'll uh, be able to listen to this podcast every week. And with that, we go back to Daniel. Daniel Epstein, the founder and CEO of Unreasonable Group. Unreasonable is on the mission to enable entrepreneurs solve what they call BFPs, big fucking problems, such as global poverty and climate change. Unreasonable has been the driving force of developing a global ecosystem for impact-driven entrepreneurs and has convinced massive organizations such as the US State Department, Nike and Barclays to join them on the journey to fix the world's biggest problems using technology and entrepreneurship. Unreasonable also invests in entrepreneurs across the world through its Unreasonable Capital Fund. It's great to have you on the show, Daniel. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Privilege to be on, on the show with you. How did it all start with Unreasonable? What was the massive problem that you saw needed solving before you started Unreasonable? Huh. That, I, you know, it's funny. I've never been asked that question. Um, I, I think uh, you know, if, if you go back to actually um, how we came up with the name, um, that'll probably paint the clearest picture. Um, the name Unreasonable is inspired by um, a quote by George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, uh, who's famous for saying that the reasonable man adapts himself to the world, the unreasonable one persists in adapting the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable person. And in essence, in our belief, if George Bernard Shaw is right, then, then we can't afford not to bet on unreasonable individuals. And so I think what makes us, you know, quote unquote, unreasonable is I, we scour the globe um, and I, you know, we search for the world's most unreasonable individuals who are trying to define progress. Um, and that's probably the edge, is trying to define progress in our time. Uh, you know, the entrepreneurs we support, um, though, though you know, localized initiatives are very important, um, their, their ambition is to, this might sound hyperbolic, but bend history in the right direction. You know, the, the fact that 758 million uh, individuals are functionally illiterate. Uh, you know, the entrepreneurs we work with want to solve that statistic. Uh, the fact that 1.2 billion people don't have electricity, the entrepreneurs we work with want to solve that. So it's probably the ambition of the uh, yeah, individuals that we support that makes um, unreasonable unreasonable. I'd like to talk a bit about your partnership with Barclays and uh, Unreasonable Impact Accelerator, where you have supported entrepreneurs across the world, in the Americas, Asia-Pacific, and Europe. Why would a bank like Barclays join forces with you to develop that program? Yeah, um, 
you know, with with unreasonable impact, um, you know, it's truly co-founded. Um, we didn't go to Barclays uh, and say, "Hey, we have this idea. I uh, do you want to fund this initiative?" Um, we spent years uh, together, um, our teams trying to find uh, you know, a real source of trajectory alignment for both our organizations. Um, and uh, it came out of you know, a very genuine relationship where actually we, we had written a white paper together on uh, impact investing from the entrepreneur's perspective, not from the investor's perspective um, around what was effective, what was ineffective. And it was um, over the year of writing that paper that our teams got really close and realized we could do something bigger together. Uh, you know, the theme for Unreasonable Impact is looking at entrepreneurs um, with kind of two lenses on top of it. The first one is looking at entrepreneurs as job creators. Um, so every company we align with, we believe is positioned to create at least 500 jobs within five years. Um, the second lens is the green economy, uh, which in essence means that the companies we're supporting are profitably solving uh, a key challenge um, related to the environment. Um, and mind you, that spans almost every industry and every sector, because that's the future of food, it's the future of energy, it's the future of transportation, smart city design, uh, you know, closed loop manufacturing, intelligent supply chains, like it goes across everything. And I think that was where um, the alignment really happened between our organizations. Uh, you know, Barclays is, uh, I used to say they had the creative courage to co-found Unreasonable Impact. I now believe that they had the uh, yeah, intellectual foresight uh, to co-found it because when we had first sat down, um, I remember asking them, you know, why, why does the green economy matter to them? Uh, and the team at Barclays, um, you know, in essence said that if we look at the internet uh, and how it's permeated every sector, every industry, soon to be every geography, um, that green is going to do the same. That green is the future of business because at the end of the day, it's just going to be more profitable. So for Barclays, they want to become the smartest green bank in the world because they believe that the new economy will be sustainable. Um, but they also want to get close to these uh, you know, fast growing um, kind of growth stage entrepreneurs because they believe that they're the future titans of industry. Um, and, uh, and they would love to work with them on their journey as they go from, uh, you know, kind of scrappy growth equity stage company to uh, ideally through an IPO um, and eventually on that, you know, Fortune 100 list. So for them, uh, it was an initiative that's less driven by CSR and more really by the core of what Barclays was doing. Yeah, I, th I think it's a, it's a both. It's not an either or. Right. You know, there's that, the concept of shared value. This is. Uh, you know, kind of the perfect embodiment of it. You know, there's, yeah, this is this is a this may also be what makes us unreasonable uh, as an organization. Uh, but we really have a belief. But the world is finally starting to say, hey, you can you can do well and do good at the same time. And our belief is to take that one step further. Our belief is that actually you'll do better than anybody else. You'll produce financial alpha uh, if you go after. Um, trying to do as much good as possible in the world. Um, and, and, I, and I think that, that that is shared value and that's what this partnership is really about because it is, you know, it came out of the community investment team um, and, and then went across the entire bank and whole of the organization of Barclays. Um, but it is both. Um, it's impact first and in the long term, it's, it's a really smart play um, for Barclays to help future-proof the company. How did you first start close these partnerships? Uh, did they approach you or did you really have to work hard uh, to close these partnerships with these prominent companies? How this all began was an important shift in, 
in our approach to impact as an organization. Um, I think it's important to backtrack a little bit. You know, originally, uh, Reasonable worked with um, you know, much earlier stage companies. We were an accelerator. I, and we supported entrepreneurs who you might have a team of two, three, four people. They have a really compelling prototype. They're trying to get it into market. Um, and ultimately, we were trying to help launch companies that could profitably impact a million lives. That was kind of the baseline. Um, but they weren't necessarily doing it yet. Um, and what happened was an evolution in our thinking um, where we began to feel that when it comes to solving these BFPs, you know, these seemingly intractable social environmental problems, that impatience is a virtue. And we started to scratch our heads and say, well, how might we do this faster? You know, how do we move the needle on these global challenges more quickly? Because you know, our future depends on it. Uh, and the situation is pretty dire right now for a lot of people. Um, and that's when we decided that rather than working with very early stage companies as an accelerator, uh, let's scour the globe. Let's find the most effective solutions in the world. Uh, let's back the CEOs and entrepreneurs of companies that are already in market, um, that are already wielding a technology that is working and that is ideally already profitable. And let's scale what works. You, know, you might be bringing clean drinking water to 2 million people. It's profitable. It's measurably effective. How do we help you go from 2 million to 200 million faster? Uh, and in that shift, we realized um, kind of two challenges to the model. One was we couldn't have a call for applications. Because uh, the best you know, entrepreneurs in the world at a growth equity stage in their development would never apply because they're too focused and too busy. But the second one was we, we needed to change our funding model because we couldn't charge those entrepreneurs, right? Most accelerators that exist charge the companies they support, and, and rightfully so. Um, and whether that's in equity um, or that's in tuition uh, in some form, um, they're charging them. We realized that we can't do that because it'd be antithetical to the design principles of this model, which is we just wanted the most effective entrepreneurs on the planet. I, and so not only can we not charge them, we need to cover their costs of driving support to them. I had realized, um, actually one, one of a, a good friend, one of our mentors, his name is Pascal Fignette, um, he basically said, hey, I, the business model here is if you can actually do that, I think that the R&D departments of multinationals would kill to have proximity to that level of innovation to you know, these growth stage entrepreneurs. Um, and so it took a long time to make it work. Um, we ended up uh, uh, initially partnering with uh, Microsoft, Nike, and SAP um, around an initiative that was looking at kind of transnational entrepreneurship. So how do you take a technology that's effective in uh, you know, one country or maybe three or four countries um, and move it intercontinentally and um, you know, a, a really around the world? Um, and that, that was very hard to get off the ground. Um, but once we had shown the value uh, to brands and to large institutions, um, then they started to reach out to us. I, and so, I, but that, that was, you know, that was, that was a two year slog of trying to, you know, figure out is it the, the chicken or the egg first, right? Uh, and we, we had to align with some companies um, who were, uh, you know, I don't know if it was foolhardy enough uh, or had enough foresight um, but to uh, think that, you know, maybe this model could really work. Maybe we could get the most effective entrepreneurs out there. What's the sweet spot for you? What's the type of company that you're looking for? You mentioned it's mainly scale-ups, but what's the type of startup that would benefit most from this program? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so there's a couple things. Um, in terms of type of company, um, one is we look at the intention of why it was created. Um, so... You know, there's a big difference between profiteering and profit. Um, and we do not look to align 
with entrepreneurs who are in the business that they're in um, solely for uh, a profiteering motive. Uh, we want to align with entrepreneurs who started the company because they desperately want to solve you know, a seemingly intractable challenge, uh, social or environmental, and they believe that this company was the best tool um, towards that. Um, so that's kind of the first thing is understanding their intention. The second one is understanding their ambition, uh, which is we look for nonlinear uh, growth trajectories of the company that we align with, um, and we look for an ambition within the senior leadership um, that they, they want to solve a problem full stop, uh, that they're not going to be satisfied you know, until, to quote Muhammad Yunus, the statistic they're going after is put in a museum. Uh, and so we certainly look for companies that have uh, global ambition um, around solving a problem. And we look for a line of logic that uh, we feel like we could be convinced that um, this team and the technology um, that they're leveraging could actually get there. Um, and I'd say the third one is um, that the, the impact they're seeking in the world is baked into the DNA of the profit model. Uh, thereby you know, ensuring that the more profit they make, the more impact they have. That it's not tangential, that the impact is not a nice to have, that it's, it's actually the core offering of the product or service. And when we look at all of that, um, if all of that's there, then we start to look at stage. Um, you know, the, the average company uh, that we're working with across um, all, of, all of our cohorts um, has raised or made about 40 million US dollars uh, when we induct them. Uh, into the fellowship. Uh, and now that varies upon um, regional focus. Occasionally we'll run a program that's focused on a smaller region. And when there's a smaller region, there's a smaller pool of entrepreneurs. And so they'll be a little bit earlier stage. But most of what we do um, is looking uh, yeah, at building a portfolio at least across one continent, um, if, if not um, you know, uh, worldwide. Uh, so um, stage is important to us because uh, what we want to do is work with entrepreneurs at an inflection point where they have something that works, uh, it's ready for scale, um, and uh, our hope is that we can help get them uh, to that next level um, of, of growth. that are already validated by the market. Um, now it's let's scale what works. Uh, to, to your second part of the question, which is you know, what do we actually do uh, for the fellows? It's a, a magnificently important question. And uh, you know, there, there's an expression, um, that, uh, that I heard uh, growing up, and I actually don't agree with it necessarily, but it's uh, those who can't do teach. Um, I like to say that those who can't do or teach um, do what we do. Uh, and in, in essence, um, you know, what I mean by that is we have two jobs. Uh, the first one is to be master conveners. Um, we, we strive to convene the, the most effective promising growth equity impact entrepreneurs on the planet uh, with the policymakers, the multinational executives, the family offices, the sovereign wealth funds, the private equity groups, you know, whoever it might be uh, that they need to uh, get closer to to scale. And then the second part beyond convening is creating the conditions uh, for uncommon, you know, highly productive collisions between ideas and people that wouldn't normally happen uh, were, were we not uh, convening them and creating those conditions. Uh, and so what, what that looks like, um, most of the world thinks we run two-week programs uh, for growth stage entrepreneurs. Uh, and in those two-week programs, we wrap them with about the support of about 50 mentors um, and we'll run you know, a private funder gathering. Um, uh, the truth is, is that that's only two weeks. There's another 50 weeks in the year. There's probably another 10 years in the life cycle of their company. Uh, and for the entrepreneurs that we induct into the fellowship, we actually back them for life 
so long as the company they're working on is trying to solve the BFP. Uh, so it could be the, the company that we induct them with um, may not be the company they're working on 10 years from now. Um, we'll still support them. And so the two weeks is the point of induction. Um, the fellowship uh, is into perpetuity. Um, what that looks like um, is every month, uh, every unreasonable fellow um, can make one ask to the network. And that ask may be, you know, we're looking to raise uh, $300 million. Uh, it's a pretty advanced technology. I, and I, we're looking to connect to sovereign wealth funds. Um, and you know, through the network, um, we'll be able to bridge relationships to uh, the managing directors of multiple sovereign wealth funds. And another entrepreneur may say, hey, you know, I'm looking to fill a board seat, I, and I'd like for them to be a former uh, head of DFID. Uh, and through the network, we would connect them to ideally multiple former heads of DFID. Uh, and another entrepreneur may say that um, they're struggling to balance work and life. Uh, and that their family is actually most important to them, but they feel like they're not showing up for their team or their family properly. And in that case, we'll connect them to a top relationship psychologist, uh, as well as give them a menu of vetted executive coaches. Um, so it's highly customized, but every month, every fellow can make one ask to the network. Um, I think that's the most tangible source of value. The intangible, which is probably more important, is that entrepreneurship is a lonely, hard journey. Uh, especially for growth equity CEOs. Uh, typically, uh, the, the average age of company that we work with are seven years um, into their business when we induct them into the fellowship. And typically, they haven't taken a vacation in seven years. Um, they've been hyper-focused uh, and only seen what's really in front of them. Um, and if they meet other entrepreneurs, they meet them at conferences uh, and they talk about what they do. Um, and they don't get to drop into you know, the struggles and the vulnerabilities of how difficult it is to try to scale something that the world hasn't seen before. Um, I think that the biggest source of value for the entrepreneurs we align with is a chance to, in essence, seek refuge you know, amongst fellow misfits um, and to be able to drop in at a very human level with other entrepreneurs who are struggling desperately uh, you know, with their backs against the walls, uh, trying to will this thing into existence at a level of scale um, that, you know, that, that really matters. And I think that's probably the biggest thing is the peer-to-peer -peer network um, that the entrepreneurs have with each other. What is the focus of a program like Unreasonable Impact? Is it business development, trying to access Barclays, doing business with Barclays from the perspective of the startup? Or is it really focused on helping them through the entrepreneurial journey? Oh, no, no, yeah, it's, it's both. So yeah, Barclays is, is, is probably one of the most kind of beautiful, brilliant uh, partnership relationships that we have. Because Barclays is in the business of helping businesses. You know, that is all they do as a commercial bank and as an investment bank. Yes, there's a retail bank side too, but we're really aligned with the commercial and investment bank of Barclays. Uh, and so yeah, arguably there's no better partner for us to have uh, when we're trying to scale up growth equity companies around the world. Um, so we, we, we've get engaged um, hundreds of Barclays colleagues, of the managing directors of the C-suite of the bank um, around supporting these companies. Uh, and support comes in the fashion of, hey, we need to you know, rejigger your financial model uh, and um, yeah, transform how this is presented if we're gonna go out and raise a $300 million round of equity. Um, or it could be the Rolodex of you know, the managing directors at Barclays. You know, they, they bank basically every large company you know, in the markets that they have presence in, which is over 50 countries around the world. 
um, they have boardroom access into all of those companies. And so for our entrepreneurs, if you are looking for a relationship with Siemens or Johnson & Johnson or Tata or whatever it might be, um, Barclays has those relationships at the most senior levels and can connect uh, the entrepreneurs that we're supporting into those relationships. Uh, and in doing so, it's also really valuable for their clients, You know, those very large companies, because they're exposing their clients to breakthrough innovations that um, if they don't uh, you know, align with them, are probably gonna disrupt them. Uh, in, in the mid or long term. Uh, and so um, it's a very symbiotic relationship. Um, there are literally hundreds of colleagues that are actively working with the entrepreneurs that we're supporting with a reasonable impact. Uh, and I think that that's only going to grow over time because there is so much alignment between what the entrepreneurs need and what Barclays can offer. Let us talk a bit more about the impact-driven ecosystem. So the ecosystem of companies that you also help create uh, globally, companies that solve big global problems. What do you think is the biggest issue that um, these companies are faced? Is it a lack of funding? Is it on the other side for impact funds that there might not be enough deal for enough good startups that actually could be funded? What, what, are, what are the key issues that we face with really growing this impact-driven ecosystem? Hmm. It's interesting. Um, I wouldn't say there's a lack of capital. Um, certainly, you know, the world is flush with capital. Um, there is a lack of, uh, you know, probably uh, educated capital uh, in terms of uh, growth equity disruptive companies. Um, that is, uh, it's not an asset class that a lot of the capital that exists um, is familiar with. Um, so th that'd be one comment. Yeah, at the same time, uh, I, I would highlight the entrepreneurs we support, they've raised over $2 billion. Um, so they, they are raising uh, real capital. Um, it's just oftentimes it's hard. Uh, it takes uh, an undue amount of time. Uh, and, and oftentimes it feels like a distraction um, from the core business that they're trying to you know, also operate and scale. Um, But it is certainly there. Um, probably one, one of the bigger challenges, honestly, with private equity is the time horizon. Right? So typically, uh, if, you, if you have a private equity fund, it's usually a eight to 10 year fund, um, which means that once they invest into you, they have to have you, you know, they need a liquidity event um, within the timeline of that fund um, or else they, they failed uh, and they can't return the capital back to the investors. And I think it's that pressure on short-termism Uh, that is uh, deterring so much money from being able to enter the space of private equity. Um, and it's because private equity, by its very nature, right, it's an illiquid asset. Uh, and the only way that the investors can get liquidity is if that private company goes public or has an acquisition. Um, and as we start to see investment vehicles you know, be created, whether it's companies like Berkshire Hathaway, who are publicly traded, so there's liquidity in the stock, um, but they're investing into private companies, uh, or it's leveraging technologies like blockchain, uh, where we can actually you know, launch tokenized security funds, um, where uh, investors can buy into a token that then um, the proceeds from that get invested into private companies, but they can sell the token. You know, wh whatever it might be, I think that's the big challenge, is the illiquid nature of private equity and that it therefore needs short-term exits. And when you're looking at you know, the most compelling technologies of our time, uh, the, the idea that success for them would be 
selling that technology in six years. Um, it, there's not enough alignment there. Um, now, at the same time, though, I, I will just emphasize, um, you know, the companies we're supporting, uh, they are very viable investment opportunities. They have raised over $2 billion. But if we could solve this liquidity problem, I think that it would be five to 10 times that amount of funding that they would have received. How do you actually measure your own impact? On the website, on your website, you say that you impacted 400 million people's lives. How do you come up with these numbers and how do you measure your success? Brilliant question. The first thing I say is uh, we measure our impact humbly uh, because uh, our impact is really the impact that our entrepreneurs are having on the front lines. Um, they're doing the remarkably hard work uh, to impact those lives. Um, but, but how we think about impact measurement, there, there's a number of indicators that we look at. Uh, we look at uh, you know, typical uh, indicators of just business performance. Um, so standard KPIs, um, you know, we'll look at your growth in revenue, uh, we'll look at your growth in uh, team size, um, I will look at the you know, number of not just full-time employees that you have, but the number of jobs that you're supporting as a metric of, of impact. We'll look at the gender breakdown of those jobs. Um, we uh, look at financing, um, of course. Um, we look at geographic expansion. Um, and then all of our companies, uh, they track at least one leading indicator uh, that speaks to the, the impact that is specific to their product or service. Uh, and so... Um, that might be, you know, the number of tons of uh, carbon that um, you have sequestered from the atmosphere. Um, or that might be the number of individuals you've brought clean drinking water to, you know, according to the WHO standards. Whatever that might be, it's typically very unique to the companies. Um, and how we've kind of standardized that is we looked at the sustainable development goals as set by the United Nations. Um, there's 17 goals behind that. There's about 300 indicators. These are measurable outcomes that kind of uh, uh, wind up to the 17 goals. Um, out of those 300 indicators, about half of them are relevant to private companies. And so we have our entrepreneurs go into a database and say, okay, this this impact or this metric is the one that is most adjacent to my theory of change. I'm going to track this one. Some of our companies will track six, seven, eight, nine, ten indicators, but we require at least one. Um, and that's where um, we're getting that number over 400 million. That's the aggregate impact of all the entrepreneurs that we're supporting um, as aligned with a, with a sustainable development goal um, that they're tracking their progress on. Um, the, the only other thing I'd mention is you, you could make the argument that we just pick winners. Uh, and they were going to win anyways, right? So what is the actual delta, uh, you know, the change in the world that's resulting from the support um, that we're providing, that Barclays is providing? Uh, and how we look at that is every quarter, uh, we ask all of the entrepreneurs we support um, to identify the top five milestones um, that they achieved in the previous quarter. Um, and we ask them if those milestones are attributable to being a part of this partnership or not. Um, the other thing we look at, and it's easy to do on financing, is you know, every dollar that they've raised, um, do they attribute uh, that financing uh, to the partnership or not? Uh, and so we're able to look at attributable milestones in financing and then paint a strong correlation between that and you know, the new levels of scale they're hitting. But it's not a perfect science. Um, by any means. Um, it is something, though, that we take very seriously. If you think about the next 10 years, um, what is it that you'd like to achieve with unreasonable impact? What are the big goals that you want to achieve? Ooh, 10 years is a long time. Um, you know, our, our current uh, underpinning, you know, 
half of all of the needs of our entrepreneurs, so, so those asks I was mentioning every month, they get to make an ask. Half of those asks are tied to financing, um, which goes back to your you know, earlier question around the struggles of investment. Um, we would like to see in the next 10 years that um, in an attributable way, we've driven $10 billion uh, of financing into these you know, wildly impactful, scalable solutions um, uh, to better support the entrepreneurs. So that, that's, you know, that's certainly a uh, metric um, that we can uh, um, point to, um, that we can claim attribution on, um, and that would really help, help move the needle. Um, but it is, it is you know, 10 years from now, it's the collective impact of the entire portfolio of entrepreneurs that we're supporting that has me most excited. It's not in any individual uh, company necessarily. It's that it, in 10 years, we'd be working with about 800 um, growth equity entrepreneurs that we had handpicked because we believed that they were most likely to solve these problems. And the, the aggregated impact of that portfolio, I think, would be unmatched. But the amount of support that those entrepreneurs can drive into each other peer to peer, um, I also think will become uh, you know, the, the, the most significant unfair advantage of being a part of this network will be the other entrepreneurs that are in it um, and uh, the cohesion that hopefully we can create um, across those entrepreneurs because, because they are a rare breed, right? It kind of, you know, this idea, um, I really believe there's no shortage of capital in the world um, and there's no shortage of good ideas, but there's, there's, a, there's a true dearth of courage. Uh, and that's where these entrepreneurs come in. And I think the biggest source of impact um, in the vision is uh, that they could support each other um, along this journey. And once we hit a critical mass of you know, 500, of 1,000 entrepreneurs, um, I do think that that network um, is gonna fortify each other in a really, really beautiful way. I wish you all the best on this journey. It's amazing to see how much you've already been able to accomplish uh, with corporates uh, such as Barclays and others. And I wish you all the best on that journey. Thanks very much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. And uh, next time, my only insistence is I get asked the questions and you do the blabbering. <laughs> but really, you know, really appreciated uh, the conversation of the call and, uh, you know, your curiosity uh, in terms of what, what we're trying to do in the world. This was Impact Hustlers. Impact Hustlers is brought to you by Waira UK, part of Telefonica Open Future. Learn more about Waira on www.waira.co.uk.